Welcome to That Scene, That Song, a podcast series dedicated to discussing the films and songs that have had a profound effect on our lives. We will be having a broad collection of interesting people talking about the films and songs that they love most and a little bit about how they got through life through the songs and films that they enjoy. I hope you enjoy this series. Okay, we are back. That scene, that song. I am incredibly honored today to have Nitin Sawney here with us to speak about his long and storied career uh, and also how the great gift of film and music has touched his life in the hope that more of us can search for the very best in those two mediums. Hello, Nitin. Hi. Thanks for making some time. Thank you. I wanted to really um, start with the beginning of your story. Um, how does a boy from Rochester um, with parents and grandparents that have made the journey to England um, begin to know that music is his calling? How, how did that happen for you? I don't know if there was an epiphany moment. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the closest I can think about it was actually first coming across a piano when I was a kid, when I was about four or five, just running up and banging on the keys. Okay. But but the thing is that um, I was always surrounded by music. So from that point of view, it felt like um, music was just part of the tapestry of existence, you know, from a very young age. So um, I was always listening to a whole range of music from you know, I had two older brothers who mm-hmm. would listen to the Pirate Station Radio Caroline. So yeah. they'd be listening to a lot of rock music. Uh-huh. I'd be hearing, you know, the uh, quite staple diet of, um, you know, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and The Doors and mm-hmm. bands like that and Joni Mitchell. And then on the other side, I'd have mum and dad. Um, and dad was into a lot of flamenco. He loved um, uh, Cuban music. He okay. was really into his Indian classical music as well. And mum was very into Indian classical music. So I listened a lot to Panditji Ravi Shankar, yeah. um, and a lot of the great artists of that time, a lot, uh, particularly a lot of Indian classical music as opposed to so much of the Bollywood stuff, mm-hmm. um, although later on I listened to that as well. But it was kind of more, um, it was it was all of that. And of course, I also got into classical piano when I was very young. So I was playing, um, you know, I, I kind of went through all the grades and, and was playing a lot of uh, Debussy, Chopin, Sati, you know, I, I kind of loved playing the piano all the time and then got into flamenco guitar from the age of eight. So I was constantly, um, you know, playing. I started playing piano from four or five and then took it from there, really. But the, there's clearly a gift there because with, with, with all the will in the world, if someone put me in front of a piano at four, it would be a disaster. Um, let alone, you said at eight you were doing flamenco guitar? Yeah, I mean, I, I got... Yeah, I got into it because my dad had a, an album by a guy called Philip John Lee, who was who'd played with Paco Pena. And later on, I bizarrely, I came across an advert from him in <laughs> in a paper when I was about eleven. And I I used to trek up to London to get lessons off him. Yeah. So because uh, I recognised the name, I thought, oh my god, that's the same guy. So um, so I kind of grew up listening to my flamenco teacher mm-hmm. <laughs> in the end. And um, and yeah, I mean, I I kind of loved. I had a natural interest in flamenco and I didn't realize till a lot later on that flamenco 
had largely originated from India, uh, from Rajasthan, and from the gypsies in in Rajasthan. Flamenco so, originated from Rajasthan. Yeah, because you, if you, if you, anyone who's seen any of the uh, Rajasthani gypsies, they'll they'll see them with the castanets, the original castanets, and in fact, um, Kathak dance as well was a forerunner of, of flamenco dance. Mm. And there was that whole trek across from. In fact, there's a great film about it if you ever want to watch one. Um, called Lacho Drom, mm-hmm. uh, which actually means is Romany for Safe Journey, where um, Tony Gatliff, who directed it in, I think, 1993, um, who's from a gypsy background, um, celebrates that journey and and the evolution of flamenco into Spain uh, from, from Rajasthan. So he'll start off, I mean, the whole thing's just music and dance. But I think there's a lot of recognition of that mm. within the flame- flamenco community so in, do, do in Spain. So do you know what period it arrived in Spain? I'd say it's probably around the 17th century, 17th, oh, okay. 18th century, so because because um, also I think um, you know Catholic dance really evolved around that time. But also, um, you know, if you talk to I, I remember he's the late uh, great Pepe Abituela, who was a fantastic flamenco guitarist in Spain, would talk quite extensively about um, about flamenco uh, originating from India, as did um, Joaquin Cortez, the, um, yeah, Joaquin, the fl- yeah. yeah the flamenco um, dancer. I, I love that you're saying this because there's mm. one friend of mine who uh, is from Spain and if mm. I said this to him he would argue saying it's not this is our culture but but history has a way of, of letting you realise that we actually know very little about you know well this is the thing because I, I kind of I mean of course um, you know fl- flamenco is, um, is a very dynamic form I mean you know originally People like Andre Segovia, the great classical mm-hmm. guitarist, um, said he wanted to take the guitar away from the noisy hands of from flamenco guitarists. But then people like Paco um, de Luthia actually brought a lot of finesse to flamenco guitar mm-hmm. and brought in influences from jazz, but also recognized, again, uh, that strong influence from India because yeah. in, he worked with a lot of Indian artists. Um, you know, there's, um, there's in fact, footage of him recording with the uh, late, great Panditji Ravi Shankar as well. So, um, yeah, there's a real acknowledgement from the, from the top community. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, these are the, these are the legends. We're talking about Pepe. This yeah. is flamenco royalty. These people recognize that, that, that you know, flamenco originated from from India, but is has you know obviously um, integrated within yeah. Spain with all the influences that they had already from uh, from classical guitar, yeah. from other forms of yeah. guitar playing as well, and yeah. from the gypsies that were already you know uh, from Spain as yeah. well. And I guess every genre of music, if you look back far enough, is is borrowing or uh, from other forms. You know whether. You know, look how many you know jazz itself. How many things have been born out of jazz? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, you've mentioned about six genres already. Mm, <laughs> of I mean, music. I mean, just just on what you just said. I mean, you know, with with jazz um, itself. I mean, if you go, it's it worked the other way around because Panditji Ravi Shankar was really influenced by jazz at the Hot Club of France when he was in Paris, and he was influenced by people like Django Reinhardt as well as Andre Segovia, who was actually a, a neighbor of his. So. He was, um, you know, I've, I've I've interviewed him, talked to him, and so he's the legend of sitar and Indian classical music, yeah. and so he was. So it kind of went both ways, yeah. which I find really interesting. And it should be a, a, an open motorway, yeah, I guess, absolutely, of, of, yeah. of, um, of sounds and talent being being shared, free movement. Yeah, <laughs> that 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 is to me that how music becomes, in essence, the very best. Absolutely right. You're you're um. You've had so much success from what I would call um, uh, commercial success to receiving 
um, many, many um, plaudits from people that know music. But I want to talk about self-doubt with you. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about those vulnerable moments where you're staring into that void for whatever reason. Because it's really important um, in this podcast for us, for anyone that's listening, to know that even Nitin Sorni or the other guests that we have, have those moments of absolute self-doubt. And first of all, I hope you've had those moments. (laughs) Um, And um, you can give us some advice on what can pull you through and out of that place where you maybe feel that you shouldn't be in this room with these people or you shouldn't have sold this many albums or beyond skin was was it a fluke you know all of those things what 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 would you answer for that so here's what i would say is that um in terms of creative output or what's happened with my creativity i actually haven't really had many moments of self-doubt because for me it's pure catharsis i don't really set goals Mm -hmm. with what i do creatively so i don't have expectations Mm -hmm. i just enjoy process Mm -hmm. so for me whenever i've been creative or whenever i've been indulging in you know whatever it is to 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 make an album or or to work with a director or work with other musicians that always is pure pleasure to me so i don't really have you're not self- thinking of record sales no, you know, no never i'm i'm i do i start from a place of just i need to express something i've got something to say mm-hmm. in the same way i have conversations so I don't really open my mouth uh, mm. if I'm in conversation unless I've got something that mm. I want to express. And it's the same with music. But what I would say is that that the music comes from self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, so oh, you know, and, and the point is that, you know, with Beyond Skin, it was all about uh, trying to understand identity or, or to reconcile issues of identity, race and religion mm-hmm. and nationality and so on from experiences I'd had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, um, I mean, I've I've kind of been working with a psychotherapist over the last six years or whatever, um, and it's quite interesting because where music doesn't ever leave me in any negative feeling, it's always it's always a positive experience. Um, you know, I couldn't have made Beyond Skin without having come from a hell of a lot of self-doubt and yep. negative experiences yep. where I was attacked a great deal, where I had a lot of racist abuse, where I had a lot of times where I, you know, was was just wished I didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, um, so music is, for me, my therapy in many ways um, in that it actually has always helped me to understand myself and feel more um, more in tune with myself and more in tune with my environment um, it, I don't think music is a judgmental process. Mm-hmm. So I don't judge myself in music. I don't judge others in music. I just, I just find, I just follow the flow of yeah. where music takes me. And it's interesting because musical intuition is a big thing. I mean, um, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the educationalist who actually said that, uh, uh, quoted Albert Einstein as having said that relativity came to him through his musical intuition. And it's kind of like, I think that musical intuition is is incredibly informative, not just um, in a very uh, direct way in terms of how you can understand um, how you can understand your own feelings and, and express and, and express cathartic kind of um, 
you know, emotions about about your own experiences, but also how it can lead you to other ways of thinking, even mathematics and science. Right. You know, I think I don't think I'd have as great an interest in a lot of other subjects if it wasn't for music. Yeah. And you can't defend yourself against music if you've been blessed with the ability to hear. Um, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic background or even what language you speak in. Um, yeah. And I, and I feel we should weaponize that as best we can. There are a lot of young people in this age of Instagram and other things that are really struggling. Um, yeah. Um, and what you've said about um, the racist attacks or other things that you've been through and making Beyond Skin as a way to, for whatever reason, um, exercise those demons. I, as a young person, listened to that album not knowing what you've been through. I didn't know you. Mm. And that album was some form of a safe harbor for me. Oh, that's and, good and, and, but that's that's the crazy thing about you creating art, and I interpreted it in a in a different way, but it still was some form of of medicine for my soul, which is great. Um, so it's it's um, the creative side of music and what um, it ends up being for the the customer and the consumer are two very very different things. And I know some artists get quite upset by that because they're like, well. That wasn't what I was planning to do. But I think if you put it out in the universe, it's going to become a different thing to different people. And that's right. And it is a universal language, um, but it's a language that is received sometimes in a different way from how it's given. And mm. that's absolutely cool. You know, I mean, it's it's interesting because we objectify language we, we or we have an objective notion of what language is. But mm. actually, language can be about communicating one feeling and then it becoming another feeling with the way in which somebody receives that. And I think um, I think that's the beauty of music is that everyone has their own experience of it mm -hmm. and their own interpretation and their own sometimes epiphanies through music yep. that may not have been uh, even engendered in the artist you know, themselves. But it's, it, it's incredibly powerful when that happens. Yep. Is there a single human or a, a few humans that you feel... Um, have been the 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 the, the people that the, the gust of wind that allowed your your vessel of um, creativity um, to sail. I mean, yeah, I sometimes call them spirit guides because okay. I meet along the way. So I mean, one was um, was and and sometimes I don't actually meet them, but I'll hear them or mm. I'll see them. Uh, Panditji Ravi Shankar was mm. one, and strangely enough, you know, I first came across his music when I was seven. Um, and then later on, you know, many years later, I was by his bedside when he passed away. Uh, you know, Nishka Shankar, his daughter, became a very good friend of mine. Yeah. I, I produced her album, Traces of You, with Nora Jones. And um, and it, it's, it's interesting kind of how uh, certain people, you know, I remember reading um, Long Walk to Freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, or coming across Long Walk to Freedom, and a few months later, I was in Nelson Mandela's garden reading the last page of Long Walk to Freedom, and then walking into his house and interviewing him. Mm -hmm. um, and he was an incredible influence at that time in 2001 on the way I was thinking, just because I didn't really believe in many politicians. Yeah. I, and he was the first person that I truly believed came from a place of justice rather than wanting power. Yeah. And most politicians, even if they don't want power in the first place, quite often will be corrupted by that. They get drunk on it, yes. Absolutely. Whereas he um, he had said at Riviona, 
um, in his speech before he went to jail that he stood um, against the oppression of all people, not just black South Africans. Mm. And um, I think from that point of view, I mean, again, I had incredible experiences of both him and Pandit G. Ravishankar. When I was seven, my dad... Um, my dad was playing a record of his of Ravi Shankar's, mm-hmm. and I remember turning around to my dad and saying, "And saying, um, how are they doing that trick?" And he said, "What trick?" And he said, well, "I said, well, the one where they make him play sound like he's playing really fast." And he said, "No, that's just the way he plays." And so for years, I was trying to play at that speed, and there I was, many many years later, in 2012, I think it was in 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 late, I think it was in December, and when he passed away, I was in San Diego. Um, by his bedside and I was holding his arm and Goodness. thinking that's the arm that inspired me when I was a seven-year-old kid. With with Nelson Mandela, my most incredible experience in his house was when his um, his PA came into the room and said, Madiba, which is what they called him, mm-hmm. um, Madiba, the president, is on the phone to speak to you. And he t- looked at me and he said, uh, how many more questions have you got? And I said, two or three and he turned around to her and said, um, could you ask him to call me back in 10 minutes? Now, the thing about that that was mind-blowing for me was it was the sudden moment that I recognized that that was a true egalitarian. That was somebody who actually saw everyone genuinely mm. as equal because yeah. he put off a president to talk to, you know, who the hell am I? I'm mm. just some random yeah. who's just walked into his yeah. house and is asking him questions, maybe to put it on some random album. Yeah. But he's but because I was the person in front of him, he valued me in the same way as he would anyone else. And that, for me, was was an incredible revelation because I thought, well, this is somebody who who actually is what they say they are. So I guess, you know, I mean, I've been very lucky in meeting. I mean, it's it's happened so many times when I've met people um, that I've I've been interested in, and then they come to to you know into three D life, mm. and uh, and it's been it's and they've become spirit guides without even recognizing that they are that those are some um, big names uh and it's always interesting uh i've never had the pleasure to meet meet either and they're both no longer with us but to especially about nelson mandela for you to say that he made you feel as important as another world leader mm. and that's sort of a lesson for for everyone yeah, right now I, think so. I do not want to get into the current political climate with you because we'll be here all day absolutely but you only need to watch the news and we certainly do not have any mandelas mm. in either party <laughs> this yeah. present moment mm. um but again I wouldn't describe Madiba as a, a politician. He wasn't a, really a politician. He was something bigger than politics. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I hope um, we can find some somebody appears to to fix some of the open wounds that we have in this country and he, in North America. He was a humanitarian in a politicized world. Yes, yes. And and, and moving on to identity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, as as an African immigrant that has decided, you know, I, I, I live in Leafy, sorry, with, with my, my young family. Um, my identity is very much Nigerian still. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I've taken the best parts of both cultures that have been predominantly in my life, which is, you know, Britain and, and Nigeria. Where would you say today um, how you feel as a member of the United Kingdom. What is your own sense of identity? My own sense of identity is uh, is Theresa May's worst nightmare. I, I feel like I'm a citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really um, attribute. Um, 
it's you know nationality to me is a product of chance mm-hmm. and i've always said this so, you know you, you know you have no you, we none of us have contributed to our nationality yeah. what we can say is we contribute to our culture mm. the culture around us and our personal culture and you know in that respect i have i have a lot of uh, admiration for um for the culture that i'm surrounded by but um i think of british culture as a dynamic culture, the best of British culture, that mm-hmm. is. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'll quite happily bring in influences from other countries, from mm-hmm. uh, from other ways of thinking. Um, you know, I think uh, I can't really think of any nationality or culture as being stagnant or static. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I find it boring and totally... Having said that, there is a place for tradition, mm-hmm. and um, you know the evolution of musical tradition or or thinking is very interesting to me. You know, indigenous cultures. Um, yeah, when when I go to Australia, I think it's um, I've I've spent time with Aboriginal Australians in in the Northern Territories in Arnhem Land, uh, trying to learn a, about their experiences mm-hmm. and and what they do, and and the same in America as well with Native Americans in. Um, on Manchester, for example, and, and different places I've been to, I try to engage with uh, with the land that I'm on yeah. and the and the influences that are on the people there. But having said that, I would never let um, a landmass define my identity. Mm-hmm. When I write a, an album, or if when I wrote the track Homelands, that was much more about the idea that um, that our ultimate homeland is internal. It's mm-hmm. it's of the heart and mind rather than necessarily about an actual geographical location. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I guess I'm I'm fluid in my thinking about what nationality is, and identity for me is something, as I said on Beyond Skin, that I define myself, mm-hmm. um, and it's constantly shifting, and it's constantly um, about absorbing different influences and different ways of thinking. Mm. So, so I mean, Sapiens and other books, and my observation of of mankind is that. Very few have have emancipated themselves from uh, the tribalistic identity that you're talking about, mm. and um, you know you you only have to go to a, a Premiership football match, and you watch a grown man cry because his team has won a match, mm. and it, it's it's it, in that very kind of simple terms you see how people feel they need to belong. Um, what you're saying is that you. You know, I believe part of what you're saying, Elise, is that that belonging is already within you. Yeah. Um, and many, many people can live a whole lifetime without realizing that. Um, so it's, 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 it's. It, I, again, I want the listeners to to think about that that their 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 own self discovery, the the destination of that journey is 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 you're carrying that around with you. Absolutely. And and you mentioned Yuval Harari's Sapiens mm-hmm. and, you know, having read that book and Homer Deus and, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting because his perspective, and it is one man's perspective mm-hmm. ultimately because yep. it's very much, um, it's, a, it's a very um, narrated, authored kind mm-hmm. of way of thinking about the world. Um, with Sapiens, it's... Um, yeah, it's looking at uh, history and as and from a certain viewpoint, but I think also there's a recognition there, particularly when he does go into Hermodeus, which is a speculative book mm-hmm. um, about how um, how in a way we'll let go of that tribalism to some degree. Yeah. I think uh, you know, so I think um, I think that 
the internet is actually breaking that down to some degree mm-hmm. because um, because we're able to literally surf the net and look yep. at anything. Um, you know, when I talk to younger people now, um, you know, and I take on interns every year mm-hmm. um, when I'm working at the studio and also work with a lot of young artists, um, I see how many influences they already have that um, that wouldn't have been so easy for my generation yep. to get to. Um, and I think that's really exciting. I mean, the fact that you can get on YouTube and have a flamenco guitar lesson, or mm. kind of, or a lesson on the Cora, or yeah. or um, or try to, or understand just about anything, not just musically, about but also about any other culture that you can learn yeah. other languages yourself. You don't necessarily need um, a person to instruct you, yeah. and so you're not so dependent on. Yeah other people for information and education that's a revolution in it itself. is a gift people yeah. um, attack the internet a lot because of mm. the the fake news the live streams of killings awful things awful yeah. things but yeah. fundamentally it is a mirror of mankind and mankind does have a lot of ugliness yeah but what you said many people don't talk about and that's the gift of this information superhighway yeah i'm deeply dyslexic and i really struggled with with being taught information in the traditional way in a classroom right but the net allows me to um, consume information in the way my brain's wired. Yeah. And that, that to me, made me not feel like an idiot. Yeah. Well, like many teachers would presume you to be because you, you it's, I found it too slow, the information. I already, I want more and faster mm-hmm. and all the time. Yeah. Um, and yes, you can learn how to play flamenco guitar on YouTube, but you can also learn how to fix your garage door. Yeah. Which is exactly. also a yeah. gift. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> right. And uh, I really need to learn how to fix my garage. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I, I would hate to show you my YouTube history. It's really embarrassing. I'm not the most handy of, of, of men. Um, let's get into your the films um, and, and, and some songs. Um, I think we're doing two each mm-hmm. that, um, for whatever reason, have, have never left you. They've all stayed with you. Um, let's start with maybe two scenes in, in, in films that you love. Sure. I mean, the first one that I chose was um, from uh, Panditji Ravi Shankar. Um, uh, well, he he did the score for this film, um, but it was Satyajit Ray, the great director, who directed the film. And um, and I loved I loved uh, um, Panditji Ravi Shankar's score for the film mm-hmm. because actually he did he he um, the score for the film was done in one sitting. I think he sat for eleven hours um, and continuously played the sitar. Yes, and uh, and it was recorded by. Uh, Satyajit Ray and uh, and then Satyajit Ray chose um, various rags that Ravi Shankar had played and then put them into the film itself. Now the particular scene that blew me away from uh, Bhatta Pinchali, which is um, which is the first of a trilogy known as the Apu trilogy, mm-hmm. and um, that's been re-released after how many sixty something years or something. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, well, it's a great film. It's been restored. I think the BFI um, and and uh, you know. It's uh, it's a very uh, beautiful film. It's um, and it was the debut film of um, of Satyajit Ray. In fact, it was incredible because he just had one cameraman and he um, he spent uh, a lot of time trying to raise the money to make the film mm-hmm. in the first place. In fact, I think his wife sold some of her jewelry so that they could just make so, the yeah. film. And um, and he, you know, one of the actresses. Uh, who played the grandmother um, had to walk 15 miles a day to get to the set, um, and her sari um, became really like rags during that time. And she wanted, you know, they they offered to replace her sari, and she wanted. She was so committed to authenticity with the character it's that like she she didn't want that. It yeah. sounds like a film should be made 
of the making. Of- yeah, <laughs> incredible, incredible film. Um, and also, he was very influenced by a lot of cinema at the time. I mean, he was watching um, films like uh, Rashomon uh, from um, Akira, uh, Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kurosawa. Yeah. And um, also from um, The Bicycle Thieves as well, you mm-hmm. know, the Italian film. So he was very influenced by a lot of contemporary cinema in the 50s as well. Um, but and and very you know silly literate man but he uh this film is very powerful for one particular scene which is where the father's coming back to a village that he'd left he'd left his family in order that who who are, i mean they're all incredibly poor mm-hmm. um and they're in a village in india it's a it's a rural kind of um life that they live um very poor farm uh, farmers and and they're not even you know uh, the owners of la- the land, mm-hmm. um, and he he um, goes off to um, the city to see if he can make some money yeah. and and he goes off and I don't know I can't remember what the job he was uh, that he did was but he comes back to his home after having been away for six months and of course they had no real way of maintaining contact during mm-hmm. that time so he'd lost contact with his family. He comes back uh, to the village not knowing that his daughter has died of pneumonia during that time. And we've witnessed, as the viewers, we've mm-hmm. witnessed her death. The tragedy, yeah. um, And, you know, just purely from the fact that the mother couldn't keep her warm. Yeah, she couldn't afford to. And, and, yeah. and he graphically shows that. He shows her, you know, struggling, yeah. the mother struggling to keep his daughter warm, yeah. her daughter warm. So the father comes back uh, to the village. And in this one particular scene... You see him coming back and he's calling out to his wife and his daughter and mm-hmm. his, his son. And um, and you see him uh, walking uh, into the village and there's a single cow there mm-hmm. that's just, just standing still and uh, just maybe munching some grass or whatever. And very slowly, you see him um, calling out the name and then he goes out of shot and the camera stays on the on cow. The cow. Yeah. Now, I've been in the cinema and I've looked around. Everyone is welling up. Everyone's on the verge of tears. Mm-hmm. And the reason is he allowed that space. Mm-hmm. So you're not looking at anything but a cow, yeah. Yeah. right? And that's the moment that, because, that everyone absorbs it because they go into their imagination. They go into their mind. They're not, no longer in, you know, in, the, in the actual film that's yeah. in front of them. They're just staring at a cow. Mm. But they're in their feelings. Yeah. And then what happens is you see him come from the other side of the cow. Yeah. And by that time, everyone's in floods of tears. It's astonishing to watch. If you ever go and see the film in a cinema, yeah. guaranteed that moment is one of the most emotional moments in film history. And um, and it's just the most simple thing by the static mm-hmm. nature of this one camera. And I think it was... I don't know how how much of that was by accident yeah. or how much of it was very well thought through. I think Satyajit Ray was already master filmmaker with his first film. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible film. So I think that, for me, is one of the most powerful moments I've seen in, in film. Another one is the great speech from um, Rutger Hauer. Who just left us. Who has, yeah. Mm. L- now the late Rutger Hauer. Um, um, and it's his speech in Blade Runner where he is, um, as a replicant, um, passing away on the rooftop mm-hmm. with Harrison Ford there playing, um, what was his name, the uh, the character? Uh, Decker. Decker, that's it. And um, and he's uh, and Decker's watching him and he's giving this speech that so many people know. Extraordinary speech. Which is an incredible yeah. speech with the, with the dove. Yeah. And um, it's, it's very powerful. And I'll tell you what moved me about it is the otherness. 
of the of the replicants. The fact that they were other, that mm-hmm. they were exploited, that they were turned into slaves, mm-hmm. that they were um, that they were not that they were dehumanized, mm-hmm. and that they were perceived as lesser, that they were perceived as inferior, um, and that they were struggling only to be uh, to, to survive and to be perceived as equal. Yeah. And um, and I think that is the story of um, of of refugees, of immigrants, mm. of, of so many people who have been suppressed by, uh, by another culture mm-hmm. or by another nation. Um, and it's kind of, it, it was just a very moving speech mm. in that um, he was expressing his last moments. Yeah. Um, and his last moments were, um, were wanting to share his memories. Yeah. The things he's seen, I've the seen. Things he's seen, yeah, and, and absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's an incredible thing because legacy is such a big mm-hmm. deal. And I, I remember thinking about when my own father passed away, mm-hmm. how important it was to me. Um, you know, earlier on, before you know, just a short while ago, you and I were talking about the fact that I took um, I took a CBE this time and I turned down an OBE many years mm-hmm. ago because it had the word empire at the yep. end of it as well as because of the Iraq war at the time. Um, but last year I took the CBE um, and the reason was because it came on my dad's birthday. birthday yeah. and my dad had died in 2013. He'd always said he wanted me to take it. Mm-hmm. He, he, he wanted me to take the OBE because he said it was a measure of how far we come. Sure. Um, and he, uh, as immigrants in this country, I couldn't take it because I didn't want the word empire after my name. But then... I regretted it, but when he died, because I kind of thought, well, I didn't even give him that, because yeah. he'd said, could you take it for my birthday? And then on, on his birthday last year, um, you know, the, the CBE letter yeah. came, came. Where, yeah. the offer letter, and I, I thought, I've got to take yeah, it. Yeah, this is serendipity. It's a sign. Yeah. So, and then, bizarrely, the actual ceremony was fell on his anniversary with my mum. With, with my mum. Wedding anniversary. Your wedding anniversary, Amazing. yeah. So, okay. so it kind of felt like it was meant to be. So I, I took it. It's not that I go around, you know, it's not, you won't find it on my social no. media, you no. won't find it. No. But it's kind of like it was It was something that I kind of thought, okay, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll do that. And it's the point being, you know, coming back to Blade Runner, it's that sense of legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of thought, well, um, you know, my dad wanted to, I mean, they sacrificed a lot for us. And on the on the album Beyond Skin, you know, my dad's voice is there at the beginning of the track called "The Immigrant." And um, that your father's? That's my dad okay. speaking. And okay. um, and he's talking about pic- you know, pictures of Kew Gardens that they were shown and so on. And it's a very emotional um, <coughs> speech that he gave because mm-hmm. I I interviewed him and my mum about their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And there I was at the Royal Albert Hall playing to a sold-out audience with my mum in the audience as well. Mm-hmm. My dad had died in 2013. This was only in September of this year. You know, I mean, it's an incredible thing to play. I've, I've played the Royal Albert Hall to sold-out audiences before, but it was just for the first time I was performing Beyond Skin from start to finish yep. with the choir and the string quintet and my band. And um, it was um, it was amazing to see... Um, you know, to, to see an incredible reaction from the audience um, to to the music, but also to to have my dad's words. Yep. You know, my, I literally played the sample of my dad speaking. Yep. Uh, and it was very emotional because I was aware of my mum being in yep. one of the boxes. Did you ask her how that was for her? I, I did. I talked to her beforehand yep. to warn her. And then, you know, so she wouldn't get too shocked. And then 
um, and then afterwards how she felt hearing it in that context. And it, it, she found it very moving in mm. lots of different ways. And I was asking other people how she was when they were near her watching mm -hmm. her reaction. She was shaking at the time and holding very mm. tightly. I mean, she's 84, Goodness. something like that now. And she was holding on to the you know, the bar of the box yeah. um, because she's hearing my dad's voice for the first time really since he passed away. How long did they waltz through life together? Oh, I think it must have been about nearly 60 years. Oh, proper innings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a... So yeah, a very very long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely, it was uh, it was a very very powerful moment. Well, thank you for sharing that. I am um, going back to Blade Runner. I'm a hardcore Blade Runner, amazing uh, fan, and um, I have arguments with with my other proudly nerdy friends about the um, the fact that replicants are not supposed to have souls, and that's what us as humans. Um, can only do because they're they're pretty much more advanced than us in every other way they have no immune system failures they are stronger faster they can live possibly forever all of these things and that speech by Rutger to me um i said it's impossible to speak that way without having a soul absolutely and i think that that it was deliberately left ambiguous mm -hmm. for us to interpret um you know the whole thing the director's cut is also very mm. different as well yeah. but um but the idea of um, Decker at the end, uh, the ambiguity of of him um, being a replicant mm -hmm. himself, mm -hmm. um, you know, indicates that um, there is a the way in which we look at other people, mm -hmm. um, and it, it is, you know, it's it, it becomes um, it becomes about us and our perception, yep. and it becomes about how we dehumanize. Mm. And at the end of the day with that story and with the film, it's actually really raising the question of what is humanity and how do we define it and what, is the, what are the criteria uh, that we base that, those decisions upon. And, and, you know, I still think that that's the case right now. When I see politicians every day dehumanizing immigrants, when I see, um, you know, this happening across the world where um, it's so easy, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, without getting too much into it, but I mean, you know, uh, the NHS um, has has just been announcing today that they, they've got the longest waiting list ever. ever. Um, and it's an interesting time that certain politicians, or it's an interesting coincidence that certain politicians choose today to once again go on about having too many immigrants coming over when all of the statistics, all of the data reveals very clearly that... Uh, uh, immigrants not only are a net benefit to this society, but um, y you know economically, but also massively enrich the culture, mm. and would be a huge. Um, it would be a huge issue if there were, if if there were less Im immigrants, which is what this, um, what we're every single day, what we're we're led to believe should be the case. Yep. You know, and it's it's disgusting, yeah. it's particularly disgusting. to the NHS and the the the, the, the care service of this country um, yeah i mean you know this um the problem is right now people are being demonized and dehumanized mm -hmm. um for the sake of um people who want to benefit and exploit um fear yep. and um and insecurity and ignorance yep. and and that's really ultimately what racism and xenophobia is yeah. what well, you're talking about dehumanizing i i, I 
I, you know, shout out to yeah, Stormzy actually mm -hmm. for his his observation <laughs> um, of yeah. of Mr. Uh, Rees Mogg. Yeah, um, I was there not on day one, day two at Grenfell, mm. doing what I can with 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 um, some kind friends. Good for you. And and to speak in such a manner about mm. the victims mm. is something that I believe. People like Stormzy with big, big profiles. It's it's fantastic that he's like, no, that's just not. It's <laughs> quite, quite simply mm. not on. Yeah, and it, it just made it reminded me of what you were saying about you know the replicants and, and not seeing you you know choosing to mm. decide which human being is important to your life or not is not the way it should be. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think I, you know this is this is the thing because I kind of feel. Um, that we are living in an age where um, we have the possibility to be anything or to do anything we want, you know. Um, and what we've chosen to do is put people in power who who have no interest in humanity, mm. uh, who who have only their own self-interests mm. uh, at heart and who really genuinely don't seem to care about anybody except themselves mm. and are prepared to lie and spread disinformation in order to achieve whatever they want to achieve and it's it's very sad because so many people are buying into that yep gosh where will it end well, who knows yeah let's we'll wait and see let's move on to your music so yeah i've chosen two mm -hmm. um songs and one of them is uh from nusrat fatih ali khan it's from originally was on the michael brook album um well or the collaborative album he did with him called Must Must and there was a remix of that uh, track in 1990 from Massive Attack mm -hmm. um, and that's a killer remix I mean I I, I think it, I still think it's one of the best remixes out there it's fan, it's it's just um, it captured everything that was going on at the time with the whole dub scene I mm -hmm. mean anyone who was around then listening to On You Sound with Adrian Sherwood mm -hmm. and you know there were great bands around like a Dub Syndicate and African Head Charge and Tank Head and some really uh, cool bands um, around, but um, that, there was that kind of whole uh, dubby kind of influence that um, that people like Adrian Sherwood had brought into production, mm -hmm. and um, and in Bristol you had uh, Massive Attack doing what at that time was real cutting edge production. Yep. It sounds still sounds great um, on the bottom end, and and the way they uh, they took Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's voice, which is such a brave move. I mean, no one was really taking a you know a sufi kavali singer from mm -hmm. pakistan and mixing him in that way i mean of course there had been asian people who'd done it like bali sagu yep. um but there would be no one like um, massive attack okay. who had that kind of profile yep. you know with blue lines and and uh, later on you know blue lines i don't even think had come out at that point but i think um you know then then uh, protection and then mezzanine and so on but the thing with them was I loved their approach and I, I still have so much respect for them because they were, you know, they were the first really who, you know, big uh, commercial mm -hmm. cool band that actually, um, you know, mixed an, an incredible um, Cavalli singer like that. Um, and so I, I also, I love the track because it also features Sargums. Yep. Um, Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan was, um, was the first uh, real maestro of Cavalli to actually bring in uh, the use of sargums. Now, sargums are like uh, uh, the equivalent in India or Pakistan of uh, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. Yep. You have sarigama, bada, ni, sa. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to 
um, sing the actual note or, or express the note that he was on at any given moment. And he uses sargums in a in a kind of scat singing way. Yeah. You know, it's kind you, of and, you use sargums yourself. Uh, I I do in in the way I write. Yeah, yeah okay. I'm, I I don't sing, but I'll I'll use um, uh, tabla syllables if I'm if I'm speaking rhythms. But I um, I I do write for singers mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, I mean absolutely and. Um, and anyway, so this this particular track I think is one of my favourite tracks because it's got uh, Massive Attack, who are one of my favourite bands, and it's also featuring the great Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan from a great album with Michael Brooks. So mm-hmm. uh, beautiful track, and um, yeah, the maestro is best. Uh, the the next track is um, is uh, Marvin Gaye. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> incredibly prophetic ly- lyrics, which are, which never really sadly seem to go, go out, out of date. fashion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, what's going on is the constant yeah. question, and it becomes more relevant um, or pertinent every day. I think it is a little bit more so now than in yeah. a while, though. I think you're absolutely right, and and that is a question I ask every morning. <laughs> You know, it's like, uh, how is this happening? Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't explain what is what is going on. Um, it's very difficult to ignore the uh, the elephant in the room um, when it comes to this government and what's happening on the other side of the the Atlantic at mm. the moment. Um, it just feels uh, like some kind of crazy dystopian. Um, nightmare mm-hmm. that that no one seems to be able to explain to me or justify yeah. um and yet it continues and do, do and you remember where you were when my my, my, my wife woke me up at four in the morning mm. telling me that donald trump had won and mm. i had a, a massive um anxiety attack for no mm. i'm not american it, you mm. know it didn't it didn't directly affect me in the way that it has others but i was incredibly scared do you remember where you were when you heard that news? Yeah, I was. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was in my um, at, at my house, but I, and I was I was watching it on. Uh, I, I watched it late at night, but I think um, yeah, it was a it was a really weird time. I, I just couldn't understand it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just um, it just didn't make any sense at all. But I mean, I I I can't fathom how that man is leading the country. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane to me. Um, but then again, I can't understand what's going on over here either. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you for sure where I was um, when uh, when Brexit was, when, when the referendum was mm-hmm. uh, being called out in yeah. terms of the results. Um, I mean, I was lying in bed watching this on TV. Um, it, it, I was about to, I was near Glastonbury at the time mm-hmm. because I was... Um, I was about to do the Infinite Monkey Cage with um, Brian Cox, with mm-hmm. Professor Brian Cox, the physicist, and um, I remember that evening I'd spoken to him, and he was pretty sure that Remain was going to win. And in the morning, everyone just looked so miserable and sad about it. And when we went to Glastonbury, there was a there was just a hush that everyone just seemed very very down. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting because you know it was it was I really enjoyed the show that we did the it, you know and we did it in front of a big crowd in, in a tent, but I remember all the way back when um, uh, back to London we were in the car I was in the car next to Brian Cox and he was just shouting at the radio and and saying you've 
you've now taken away the, um, I mean, and swearing quite a bit um, about the, uh, you know, he was he was very angry about the fact that his children now had had their opportunity mm-hmm. to work in 28 different countries, countries um, taken away, taken away yeah. you know, and, and he just could not understand it, as nor could I. Yeah. But um, I mean, the age of a lot of people that voted to leave is, I mean... I have a 21-year-old brother. Hmm. Uh, a lot of younger folk obviously have a different yeah. view to Absolutely. it. Um, so and a lot of them were denied the vote. Yeah. Know? Well, yeah. this is the other thing. I mean, that we, we can... I, I promise not to get too political, hmm. uh, but it's hard It's hard to ignore what's, hmm. what, what's going on. And, and, and then you've got the, the, the climate t- t- strike issues. Mm-hmm. Um, people are beginning to realize that this, this are... Our, our only home for now mm-hmm. um, is very sick, yeah. and something needs to be done about that. Um, well, as you rightly said, it's hard to not ignore what's going on. Hence, I didn't, which is why I chose it as a track. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's good. <laughs> Thank you, Marvin. Thank you. Um, to finish with, I always ask uh, our guests to give a little bit of advice, and the advice would be for young folk. So, if mm. you were at a campfire with you know, some young uh, boys and girls who are a little bit lost. Um, the internet has engulfed them and they're kind of drowning in the noise of it. They don't know if they'll ever be able to have what our generation would have, which is you get the mortgage, the house, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they need to have some hope in their hearts. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them? So I would say several things. One is um, don't let anybody tell you that it's not enough to just be you mm-hmm. and that, that you have to justify who you are by uh, aligning yourself with some other external notion of what identity is, mm-hmm. whether it's through your nationality, your religion, or material, material yeah. your skin color, anything like that. My whole way of thinking is, is that you are enough mm-hmm. as you are. And as and and you 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 know that the realization of that is a huge epiphany in itself. Quite yeah. often, yeah. and it's it, you can even say it, but quite often to actually realize, realize it, it and to and to, then the, the shackles just come off. Yeah, they? and then to to bring that into your everyday life, that is a huge huge deal. Um, and and like you said, the shackles do come off. Um, the second thing I would say is. Um, is that I live my life by being process orientated, not goal orientated. Mm-hmm. So expectation is is actually the enemy of happiness mm-hmm. to me yep. and um it's also the mother of anxiety yeah absolutely yeah. so it's kind of the the problem is that so many people have expectations and goals mm-hmm. um and i think those take care of themselves if you enjoy the process of whatever you're doing mm-hmm. so engage with whatever you're doing get into it um and i think things tend to come to you i do really believe that you know i i kind of and people that I've said that to in the past have even said, well, that's easy for you to say, mm-hmm. um, you know, things have gone well for you. Well, they didn't initially. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to get to that point and I've always had the same philosophy, you know, which is, um, you know, just just really engage with the process, enjoy every moment of it because it's, if you are, if you if you focus in on whatever you're doing and really take time to enjoy it, then you're never far from happiness. If you're goal-orientated, well, it could go one of two ways. It might be that you don't achieve your goal, mm. in which case you're disappointed. But even if you do achieve your goal, you've wasted all the time leading up to your goal 
not being happy until you achieve it. That's so true. And it can be quite yeah, fleeting yeah, when yeah, you do, yeah, because yeah. then you're waiting for the next goal. And so my whole thing is enjoy the process, be in the present, don't live in the past or the future, don't mm -hmm. live in regrets and don't live in expectations. Live in the moment and enjoy everything you've got. Wow. Well, if there was ever a living, breathing medicine man for the soul, it is Nitin Sawney. Thank you so much for making the time. Cool. Thank you very much. Cheers. The team of What We See have had an amazing time making this podcast, but it would be nothing without the amazing people at Another Tongue that have helped make this thing happen, especially my capo, the boss, John Love, who has allowed us to explore our creative juices in his studios and his amazing team of sound engineers and composers, Archie Wilkinson, Dan Lambert, and Kyle Rolf, the Rolfmeister. Thank you so much. I enjoy working with you and hope we do many, many, many more things together.